Alternative Theories of Podcasting with Melanie Chandra, Liz Guzman, Stuart Harper, Kat McGuire, Mark Perber, and Christina Smith. The Jobcast, April 2012, Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to The Jobcast. Joining me today in the studio is Stuart and Kat. Hi guys. Hi. Hello. And we hope you enjoyed our NAM specials and our shorter than normal April episode, but we're all back to normal now. In the show this time, we talked to Professor Raman Pringer about stellar winds and massive stars, Dr. Paolo Ferreira about testing alternative theories of gravity using pulsars, and Dr. Melanie Jandra answers your astronomical questions. But first, before all of that, Mark talked to Dr. Christine Jordan in this month's Job Bite. For this month's Job Bite, I'm talking to Chris Jordan, who works out here at Jodrell Bank Observatory and is sort of what I think of as a kind of bridge between the telescope and the people that use the data from it. So can you tell us a bit about about how you do that? Oh, well, I came here quite a long time ago, so I'm one of the, the older members still out here. And I came from a background of making computers work on things and making computers steer, tele- well, not telescopes, steer large lumps of metal. Uh, I've worked on wind turbine controls and channel tunnel digging machines. So the Lovell telescope is another big bit of metal that a computer has to move around in the right direction. So the first things I did when I came here were the to work on the control systems to point telescopes in the right place. But after that, I mostly work on getting machinery, getting interfaces together, to take the data from the telescope and parcel it up nicely for the astronomers to use. It's a good job. I don't have to write technical papers. Uh, <laughs> but if I'm lucky, all these kind people will put my name on the paper anyway. So I get the glory, but don't have to do the really nasty bits of work, which is writing essays. <laughs> so that's what you consider to be the nasty bits. It seems as though other people sometimes desperate for you to help them get the data into a form that they can actually use, as though for the astronomers that, that's sort of the nasty bit, I guess. Yes, well, that hopefully that's the easy bit. I get a bit fed up writing scripts after a while. <laughs> for for those who don't do any computer programming, you can write big programs that crunch the numbers, but you can write little things called scripts, which will help you go through large amounts of data by calling up your big programs in the right order. And uh, as I suspect most astronomers know, they can be the really nasty things to work on. <laughs> Mostly, though, I work, at, I work before that. I work with a new piece of hardware that somebody has decided they want some data from the telescope better than we ever did it before. Uh, we've gone from very old computers that people have hand-wired and had maybe eight kilobytes of memory to big computers and then back down to small ones again. <laughs> Eight kilobytes is, is truly tiny compared yes. to what you get now, isn't it? Well, they used to sort of say, oh, you've got more in your mobile phone, but you, nowadays a mobile phone doesn't even compare with our bigger computers sometimes, <laughs> the older big ones. We had a lot of analogue equipment, which meant that some uh, digital engineer, some electronic engineer would have designed various chips to do a lot of the work for us, and then we just read the data out every few minutes. Uh, you didn't get an enormous amount of data... So the computer was left to work for itself, and the hardware did most of the hard work. Nowadays, though, computers are much, much better than they were. They're very fast, and we put more and more of the work onto the computer in dealing with the data. Mark has said that um, I should I should tell you about some of our oldest computers, and I think if anyone can take a picture of one to put up on the podcast, it would be nice. Something we'll like the Microsursi in the Link Cut, which is our last working Microsursi computer. It's hand-wired, it's still just about running, and uh, it is due for replacement eventually. <laughs> what does it do at the moment? At the moment, it deals with things called the L-band link phases which are how we send timing signals up and down to our outstation telescopes. And it also deals with a few more, a few last-ditch controls for setting local oscillators for things. So it's part of Merlin then synchronising the, the computers? It's, yes, it's mostly part of Merlin. Synchronising the telescopes, I should say. Yes, the, time, the timing on the data from the telescopes. Right. We have to make sure that data for something like Merlin and pulsars, which I work on as well, is all timed to the best possible level we can do. Are there any aged computers that no one dares to replace? Well, that's one of them. No, <laughs> nobody dares touch that one. It, every so often we go and press three buttons on it to restart it. But that one used to have to load paper tape in to reboot. Wow. 
And what sort of um, hardware, coming back to the, like, the present day, what sort of hardware are you working with at the moment? Well, nowadays we've moved through putting systems in that were analog systems, which did a lot of the processing. The computer does a lot more of it now. So the first one of those we did was called Cobra, which stood for something, coherent something back-end coherent for radio astronomy. Band. Yes. Or back-end. It stood for something. Mainly it was just a name like a snake, yeah. which sounded cool. Now, this was about <laughs> five cabinets, chock full of computers, so half a room full of computers. We fed a raw data signal in, and it de-dispersed it, which means you had to tell it what the pulsar was like, and it unraveled all the things that happened to the pulse between leaving a pulsar and getting to Jodrell So we had to know a lot about a pulsar. We fed in all the data that we had, and the computer would decode the signal. It's very similar to the sort of work that the SETI will be doing on their SETI at home, if any of you have ever run that. Mm-hmm. That took up a lot of space. It had something like 120 processors, uh, all sitting in racks, churning out heat and data. We have since replaced that with pretty well a single computer. Hmm. And then we've gone back up again because we've added another 20 or 30 computers, so it does the same work, but it does it on 20 or 30 times the amount of data. I suppose that's the thing you can never resist. Once once something's got better or more compact, you can never resist just sticking in another bunch of them and, yes. and doing even more with that. The last couple of things I've been developed have been sort of baby offshoots of the current hardware for doing pulsars. One of them, quite a long time ago, we put on our 7-metre telescope, which students and uh, other people can use, which just does spectral line work. And at the time, we bought the fastest single computer we could. Uh, We put a card in it to read the data straight off the telescope, and we did things called Fourier transforms on it as fast as we could to get spectra. Now, that computer has broke down a few years ago, and I replaced it with an old desktop that somebody had no use for because (laughs) it was too slow, and it still runs faster than the thing we had on it five years ago. (laughs) So So the the computers are changing so fast that I'm now using somebody's cast-off that was too slow, and it does better than the best we could buy. Wow. Now, I always think that's interesting. Sometimes people ask me how the Lovell telescope has lasted so long, and, and I always think that the way you can improve the computer processing behind it is is a big key to why it still continues to be useful and will go on continuing to improve, even though the physical structure's the same. Well, we've improved the surface, which helped quite a bit, and that was actual mechanical engineering and metal bashing. We point it better than we did, so we track a source better. We've got better motor controls on it now, but what we now work on is putting more computers on it, and we probably, in the last few years, have gone from something like a 32 megahertz band, up to 250 or more. We could go further with the equipment we've got, but we need to find somewhere where there isn't too much interference, and that's one of the problems we have with telescopes now. We're only supposed to be observing in about a 16 megahertz band, which is dedicated to astronomy in the band we most use for pulsars called L-band. But in fact, we can sneak little bits of signal in between all the sources of interference that we have in this site. So there's the odd megabyte here and there that we can get out. (laughs) And pulsars are quite nice for doing that with because when we unravel the signal, we can get rid of quite a lot of this interference. Not everything, but we can get quite a lot of data out where people wouldn't normally be able to do astronomy. We've probably had a factor of 10 on the bandwidth that we can now deal with. So even though we haven't got a new telescope, we've improved the data we get off it by an awful lot. Mm. Merlin is doing the same thing, and we've been working on putting a new correlator on there and bringing the signal back over fibres, and that means we can bring back a really much larger bandwidth than we had before. We've gone up from that one from about 16 to about 500 megahertz of band. So instead of building ourselves several new telescopes, which would be nice, and we still have hope for that, we've improved everything by a factor of about 10, I think, maybe more in some places, just by putting new hardware on the end of it. Excellent. And then just as a very last thing, I know when you're not doing any uh, computer work, you tend to do things like weaving baskets and making things out of alpaca wool, is that Uh, right? Yes, yes. (laughs) You will, you will find that quite a lot of mathematically based people like weaving. Really? <laughs> uh, I know two or, two or three of the other people I know who weave are science based. Is that because it's mathematical or is it because it just helps you to get as far away from computers as possible? Uh, both. But it is, it is a, 
It is a craft that depends on patterns and maths to a certain extent. Right. It's not very arty. Right. I know there's some alpacas living at, around one of the Merlin telescopes, aren't there? Do you ever get your hands on their wool? I did. I went out to one of their open days. They've actually moved on now. They're somewhere a bit further away. But they ran a herd of alpacas round one of our little telescopes. <laughs> and where they had an open day there. And Tom Muxlow, one of our astronomers, went up to the telescope and told the visitors about the astronomy. <laughs> and I had a rather strange day sitting spinning alpaca and trying to explain the cosmic microwave background <laughs> to someone at the same time. <laughs> rather badly, I think. Fantastic. OK, well, on that note, I'll say thank you very much for the interview. Thank you. Thanks for that, Mark. And next up, Melanie talks to Professor Raman Pringer about stellar winds in massive stars. Hi, I'm here today at uh, the University College London uh, with uh, Professor Raman Pringer. Hi. Hi, sorry, pleased to meet you. Nice to meet you too. So, uh, Professor Pringer, what do you work on? Uh, I, my, my research is mainly concerned with the uh, most massive stars in our galaxy. So we're interested in studying these stars and their outflows and the stellar winds from the stars and uh, we, we're interested to understand how they evolve. So these are the most massive objects in the galaxy. How massive? Well, typically a massive star, we would say, is maybe has birth mass when it's born of maybe a mass of 10, 20, 50 times the mass of the sun. They would have luminous output that's millions of times the luminous output of the sun. And they have prolific stellar winds compared to the solar wind, which is actually quite feeble compared to these. So that this kind of constitutes massive stellar objects of this kind, massive stars. And what does produce those winds? Where do they come from? These winds are, are essentially uh, they're driven by radiation pressure. The intensities, if you like, the temperatures of the stars are very, very high. There's an intense radiation field in the stars. And the radiation pressure literally drives the outflow from away from the stars as mass loss. It's a transfer of momentum from radiation to the gas and that's the driving mechanism for pushing these stellar winds at great speeds thousands of kilometers per second away from the stars and it's actually lost the material is lost i mean the sun loses some uh, something like 10 to the minus 14 solar masses per year 10 to the minus 14 of its own mass per year well these massive stars they lose something like 10 to the minus 6 solar masses per year so huge increase in mass loss uh, which, which can actually alter their evolution Okay, so this mass just goes in medium around? What what happens to it? Well, yeah, I mean, it's very significant because the other reason these massive stars are very interesting is because these are the stars that, by nuclear fusion processing, make the heavy elements. So all that carbon and nitrogen and oxygen is made inside massive stars, and it's mixed up and brought up to the surfaces as the star evolves. So this is the material that is pushed out into interstellar medium, uh, so all that chemically enriched material, the way the galaxy is actually being chemically enriched is because of these outputs from massive stars. And this material is lost in stellar winds or bigger eruptions like supernovae, of course, ultimately, um, and put back into the interstellar medium to make the next generation of stars and planets, effectively, and life. <laughs> That's really cool. And is there any other reason to study those winds? Is that, does it have an impact on the star itself or anything else? Well, it alters the evolution of the star. So we are we're interested in understanding the birth, life, and death of stars. So the first challenge is how do you actually make the most massive stars? How do you how do you actually form stars that are hundred times as massive as the sun, for example? So that's an interesting challenge in itself, and you know, it's a lot of debate, and it's not yet resolved and how to make the most massive stars. And when the universe first started out after the Big Bang. The first stars to form were thought to be very, very massive stars as well. So you could see an analogue here. If we could understand them in the local universe, we might be able to understand the very first stars that were made because they are indeed very, very massive. So we're interested in the birth of the stars. We're interested in the evolution. These stars evolve much faster than the, the sun, for example. The, the sun in its current stable phase, it's what we call its hydrogen burning phase, will last about 10 to the 10 years in total. We're about halfway through that for the case of the sun. We're about 5 billion years old. And these stars will... This, same phase, will only last a few million years. These stars are rapidly evolving stars. So we're interested in understanding how they evolve. And then ultimately, these are the stars that detonate as supernovae explosions. So it becomes important to understand that process into the final demise of the object that will then become a neutron star or a black hole. Uh, so there's a whole range, and it's all related to the entire stellar evolution process. We're very, very interested to explore all of that. <laughs> in terms of, like, how frequent is it to, frequent is it to see massive stars like are they 
Is there a large population of massive stars or are they more like rare objects? They're actually relatively very rare objects. I mean, the locals, in, the, in our local environment, it's really solar type stars. In our galaxy, it's dominated by the sort of low mass stars. So in, in comparison, massive stars are actually very rare. But their contribution is significant because they are putting out so much material and so, and so much chemically processed material. So although they are very low in population in our galaxy, comparatively, uh, their output is tremendous and therefore it can have a significant effect also in just sculpting the shape of the environment around themselves through their stellar winds and, and radiation. And um, you observe those winds and, and those stars in just in the optical, or is it multiple wavelengths? This is a truly multi-wavelength uh, investigation, actually. This is truly that, because we study them in the, in the ultraviolet, in the far ultraviolet, using space bones facilities like Hubble Space Telescope or the FUSE ultraviolet satellite. So we can study them in the ultraviolet, and they have very key prolific diagnostics for us to explore. And then we're equally able to study them with the optical, for example, the Barman lines. What's the Barman line? This is a, a key transition. For example, hydrogen alpha, which, which is the, which is, if you look at why a lot of these images you see in space, for example, uh, a lot of hydrogen is emitted around about six five, sort of middle or middle of the optical waveband, that sort of reddish hue that you often see. That's that's Barman H alpha, for example. So we can observe them from the optical very well, and we study a lot. We observe them in the X-rays, again, using the Chandra satellite and the XMM satellites. We use that. And we're also observing them with the radio telescopes. And we have a major project with E. Merlin uh, here at UCL, which, are, which we're leading on uh, studying these stars. And what different characteristics do you see in different wavelengths? Um, we, we are able to almost scan the outflows, if you like. If you go to the optical, primarily you can study the, what the photosphere is doing, that's the surface itself, by studying this, this is all done through spectroscopy in the case, in all these cases in optical and UV. So the spectroscopy, by decoding the spectral line information, by decoding that information, we can understand in the optical what's going on in the surfaces of the stars and in the very inner wind, if you like, the very, just as it leaves the stellar surface. We can study that in the optical very well. Uh, in the case of the ultraviolet, we get a much longer column of material that we can study, which is, if you like, inter integrated over the whole stellar wind. And in, for example, radio, we're studying the outer, the, the, the outer regions of this outflow. So we're able to almost use these different wave bands to scan across the entire radial region, if you like, of course, these stars, right from the surface out to great distances, hundreds of stellar radii away from it. So it's like looking at the envelope of the star or the... The entire, the entire envelope, you know, by sampling these different wave, re wave band regions. So it's like getting the full picture, right? Not just sort of studying one corner of, you know, one little part of it and not knowing what's going on in you know, 10, 50 stellar radii out. Uh, we're able to study the whole the whole flow in that case. So you said at the beginning that you uh, you actually are going to have uh, probably an Emerlin program. What would be like? What's interesting in in looking at those massive stars? Because Emerlin is a it's a big interferometer. You can see a lot of details. What's the what's the importance of uh, of looking at those stars with uh, with such a telescope? Well, what we're interested in doing is uh, we have a legacy program given awarded to us, to, and we are going to do some very deep field mapping of a substantial association of massive stars. It's called SIGOV2. So this region in our galaxy is one of the largest collections, if you like, of massive stars that we can we can pick up on, and we can conduct a deep field survey of these objects uh, to gain a, a lot, essentially have an enormous amount of information in, in their radio properties across a very large range of massive stars and go quite deep in there and try to understand not just how those stars formed but also there'll be an association of younger sort of young type stars in there and there'll be binary stars interacting there are these there are two massive stars for massive stars that are close to each other and their stellar winds are colliding so all these processes are taking place and we can pick them all up using radio observations using the high sensitivity of e Merlin we can look at all these different objects in a large association like SIGOV2, so we can just deep field map this core of this thing and have pick up hundreds of interesting objects of that kind in one go. And that'll be very, very interesting. It'll have, an, it'll have an impact on what I've just been describing in terms of massive star evolution and winds. It'll also have an impact on understanding when massive star winds collide and you have these high energy processes taking place. What's going on in these collisions is this big, supersonic outflows smash into each other. So we've got to study those. 
The other thing we can do is because eMerlin offers very high astromatic precision, that is, that you can, you can allow us to actually see, if you like, um, the motion. If we were to look at, if observe the association over two, three years, we'd be able to actually pick out the motion of the stars, actually see how the collection of stars is spreading, if you like, or evolving out as a group. And this teaches us how star formation and clusters form. And these are massive clusters and, again, very good analogues for big superclusters that we know are present in other galaxies as well. So. so you just said earlier that those those massive stars are pretty rare. How can you have them in, in such a, a close group uh, all together? That's, that's pretty special, isn't it? Yeah, it is very special. I think this is one of the reasons why we're interested in trying to understand why they are there in the first place. I mean, it, it, it would be rare to see large collections of of massive stars like this, and this is why it's such a fantastic opportunity to understand the formation process of something, of why they would form as a huge cluster of them. Um, so they are exceptional. Um, so it's, we are looking to understand whether they might be triggered in some way, the mass, the mass, the formation of these stars. Is it triggered in, because there are other massive stars that trigger the next generation of massive stars? Is there some kind of triggering going on here? Um, but we don't know. We, we just, we just are very interested to understand and it's an opportunity, it's a fantastic opportunity that Sigo B2 in our galaxy allows us a great opportunity to study a collection of massive stars like this, and that is rare. Um, are those massive stars, can you study them in, in galaxies outside of the Milky Way, or is the study limited to the Milky Way for instrumentation reason? No, they're very prolific. You can't study them in other... I mean, you, you couldn't do it with, with current, with Emerlin, the kinds of sensitivity that we try to do for the radio, but in other wave bands, and, you know, it is possible to study clusters of massive stars, for example, Large Magellanic Cloud has some prolific clusters of massive stars in them, and you can study them in other ways. And to some extent, you're, as you go further out, you're studying them as a collection rather than as individual objects. You're actually studying their collective influence in a galaxy. But then when you become interested in the details of them, then you have to come back to our local cases to try and decode some really interesting information that you could then reapply to more distant galaxies where they're not fully resolved. Really cool. Well, uh, thank you very much, uh, Professor Prinja. My absolute pleasure. Nice to talk to you. <laughs> thank you. And uh, bye. Bye. Thanks for that, Melanie. And now we have Liz talking to Dr. Paolo Ferreira about testing alternative theories of gravity using pulsars. Hello, this is Liz, and I'm here with Dr. Paolo Freire from the Max Planck Institute for Radio Astronomy in Bonn. He did his PhD here in Manchester, and then he worked eight years in Arecibo in Puerto Rico in one of the biggest radio telescopes. And he gave a talk last week about how to use pulsars to test general relativity. So how are you, Paulo? Hi, Liz. I'm doing great. And uh, um, congratulations to you for running this, and uh, uh, hi to everyone listening. Thank you. Um, so... Tell us, Paolo, tell us a little bit about um, a pulsar and how do you use them to test general relativity? A pulsar is an extremely interesting uh, thing. So it's basically a Newton star. So Newton stars are the end uh, stages of the um, evolution of very massive stars. So we can think of them as basically, uh, they formed in a supernova, and we can think of them as a giant atomic nucleus. Uh, so... Uh, we, we normally have matter made of small atoms. Uh, where they have a nucleus of protons and neutrons, and then they're surrounded by electrons. In the case of a neutron star, uh, something very dramatic happens at the end of uh, the life of a star. Um, as the, st the star explodes in the supernova, and in the core, uh, the core you have just uh, in this immense gravity of the of this this dead star crushing the atoms together. So the, this is the, so powerful is this gravity that it overcomes the repulsion between all these nuclei and uh, essentially they all crush together and we have the product is this enormous, it really is like an atomic nucleus. So it's made of protons and neutrons and it has some electrons at the, at the outer edges. And uh, so to have an idea, it's something uh, like uh, with the diameter of a few kilometers, something like 30 kilometers, and the mass of this thing is something like half a million times as massive as the Earth. So we really wow. have densities in the core that are something like a few hundred million tons per cubic centimeter. Wow. So th these, are, these are really, these objects are really extremes of every kind of physics we know. I mean, the, that's really where we can test 
uh, gravity, we can test quantum mechanics, we can test our knowledge of nuclear forces. A pulsar is a Newton star for which we can see uh, some kind of pulsations normally caused by the rotation of the object. Mm -hmm. So if you think about the, the pulsar is emitting radio waves and, uh, and other kinds of waves, gamma rays and x-rays um, through its magnetic poles. And so every time it rotates, we, uh, we can see some pulsations. It's a little bit like a lighthouse. Okay. The lighthouse is always emitting uh, light, but uh, we only see pulses when it's pointing towards us. Yeah. So the, that is the that that's how how it works. Um, the main feature uh, that uh, we prize about uh, these pulsars is how regularly they rotate. Okay. In some cases, they can be uh, stable uh, in the long term as atomic clocks, or perhaps even better. We still don't know. Um, but uh, yeah, th that is the, the feature that makes them extremely useful for a whole range of uh, astrophysical experiments. Okay, so what what was the main thing that you used this this pulsar or this? Because you were talking about a binary system, right? Mm -hmm. So how is this binary system made of, and what are the two different um, stars, or then how do you use them to test the general relativity? Uh, yeah, so the I was as as you were saying, I have uh, uh, before we started the conversation, I, I gave a talk here at uh, the Jodrell Bank Center for Astrophysics um, last um, Friday, Sorry. and uh, I was talking about a particular binary system called PSR J seventeen thirty eight plus zero three thirty three. Uh, so in this system, uh, we have one of these pulsars, a really fast spinning one, something that rotates about one hundred eighty times per second. Wow. So just so to have an idea how fast, I mean, some of them can rotate very, very fast. I mean, the, the record holder rotates 716 times per second. Oh, wow. uh, so the um, so we have one of these these pulsars being orbited by a white dwarf star. So a white dwarf is also some kind of dead star, but still made of atoms. It's still not as extreme uh, as, as a neutron star. So instead of... Uh, a few hundred million tons per cubic centimeter have a weight similar to almost a ton per cubic centimeter. So it's still extremely dense, uh, but uh, they are objects that are much closer to, to our realm of existence than, than a Newton star. Um, so uh, this particular system I was talking about was discovered in 2001 using the Parkes Radio Telescope in uh, Australia. So this was doing a survey of the large portion of the sky. And it found uh, this, this binary system, 1738-0333, which I have been studying ever since. The interesting thing about this system is that you have a pulsar and a white dwarf, but the, they have a rather short orbital period of about eight and a half hours. Okay. Even more interestingly, um, we can detect the white dwarf using regular telescopes, uh, like the very large telescope in Chile or the, the Gemini telescopes in uh, Chile and Hawaii. And the companion is a relatively bright star, magnitude 20. Okay. So it's within the reach of many amateur astronomers. Um, so the uh, the interesting thing is with a professional telescope, we can uh, look at the star, at the companion star, and looking at the spectrum, we can measure the temperature of the star and we can even measure by looking at the shapes of the lines the surface gravity of the white dwarf yeah so this tells us something about its mass and radius yeah. once we know the surface uh, surface gravity we can have a strong constraint on that because we know i have a very good idea of what should be the relationship between mass and radius of a white dwarf and we look at this one in particular and we can measure the surface gravity so we can determine independently those two quantities. We can also, uh, by doing that, so we can measure the, the mass of the white dwarf, we can also measure the spectral lines from the white dwarf. So uh, most re most people listening will be familiar with uh, uh, Doppler shifts. So we can uh, see how the, the orbital velocity of the white dwarf changes with time. So this combined with the measurements from the pulsar, which are extremely precise, we can measure the orbit of the pulsar very precisely, this gives us the ratio of the masses. Knowing the white dwarf mass, knowing the mass ratio, we can calculate, of course, the pulsar mass. So uh, just to give you an idea, the pulsar mass seems to be very 
it seems to be the kind of usual mass that we've detected for a lot of other uh, neutron star masses, about 1.4 times the mass of the Sun, which is close to the Chun to Secker limit. So this is the um, the limit limiting mass for a white dwarf after which it will become unstable and, and collapse yeah. and form a, a, a neutron star. So this was the unusual thing about this system. We were able to measure the mass of the white dwarf, measure the mass of the pulsar, and we know all the other parameters with very good precision. We know the orbital period to a precision of a fraction of a microsecond. Wow. We know okay. the spin period with uh, 16 decimal places. Um, we, we really have, uh, from the timing of this pulsar, we can measure a lot of its parameters with extreme precision. The orbit of this thing is has a radius of about 102,000 kilometers. And uh, we know that it does not deviate from a circle by more than five microns, five micrometers. So it's probably one of the most circular things we know of. Wow. It's an extremely circular orbit. So just the way we test Einstein's general relativity is that we know this orbit very precisely. We know the masses. So using Einstein's general relativity, you can predict that this orbital period of about eight and a half hours should decrease every year by about 0 0.8 microseconds. 0 0.86 microseconds, something like that. <laughs> very and precise. It's very precise. And after 10 years measuring the, the, this orbit precisely, uh, we have been able to measure the rate at which this orbit is decreasing because it's losing energy by emission of gravitational waves. This is a, gravitational waves is a, was a big discovery uh, in the 1970s. Um, we can measure for this system that it is also like several other binary pulsars. It's losing energy. And the rate at which we measure is 0 0.8, plus or minus 0 0.1 microseconds per year. So it's in uh, absolute agreement with Einstein's general relativity. That's very interesting. So with this thing, can you test other theories to, to kind of use this, all these measurements and say, well, this theory doesn't fit or this theory also fits? It's a very good question because this is one of the things that makes this system uh, shine, uh, that tells it apart from other binary systems. So in other binary systems, like a double neutron star systems or the famous Hulse-Taylor pulsar, this was the pulsar that gave uh, the 1913 plus 16, that's the name of the pulsar. Mm -hmm. This was the system that uh, earned uh, Russell Hulse and Joe Taylor, their discoverers, the Nobel Prize in Physics. Uh, that system uh, was ex an excellent system for testing general relativity, but many of the alternative theories of gravity that we have nowadays uh, yield the same predictions for the rate at which the orbit of this kind of pulsar should be shrinking with, with every year. The, because that particular pulsar, 1913 plus 16, is a double Newton star system. So we have a pulsar and then we have another Newton star, which we cannot observe. If it has, if it's emitting radio waves, they, they don't, they're not aimed at the Earth. Okay. So, so we you... have these, these two Newton stars orbiting each other and, you know, alternative theories predict that they should decay at a rate very similar to what we observe. The nice thing about the study that uh, myself and others uh, have been involved in with uh, 1738 plus 0333 is that it is a pulsar with a white dwarf as a companion. So because we have this, this white dwarf companion, uh, these alternative theories predict that for such a system, the orbit should be decaying at a rate that is faster than what we observe. So oh, instead okay. of 0 0.8 microseconds, the orbit should be losing a, a larger rate, a larger rates of about, uh, in some cases, five microseconds a year or so. And we don't observe this. Okay. So we can uh, place constraints or in some cases exclude some of these alternative theories of gravity using the measurements that we've done for 1738. So it's a very clear, it's a very clear result. Yeah, that's really good. So what's going to happen to the system afterwards? Is it going to collide something? Yes, uh, we've calculated the, the time. So uh, the, it's because it's losing gravitational waves at this rate, at about 0 0.8 microseconds per year, uh, the white dwarf will uh, approach the pulsar, mm -hmm. and in about 15.4 billion years, uh, okay. the, the white dwarf is going to be torn apart by, by the, the very strong tide from the pulsar. So it will form a, a disk of matter 
yeah. around the, the the neutron star, and then uh, what happens to that disk of uh, you know to that very dense disk is um, um, some of it will end up in the, on the surface of the neutron star. Some of it will be most of it probably will be blown away, blown apart. And uh, there is a possibility. There is recently a result with some of the where some of the scientists uh, here at the, the Jordan Bank Center for Astrophysics were involved, where they find a diamond planet. Uh, yeah. So in a very short orbital period, uh, you might have uh, I've heard people about that it. listen yeah. to the Jodcast might have heard something about that. Um, it is possible that the system might one day form something like the 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 the, the diamond planet. So some of these matter um, as, as the as the star as the remainder of the white dwarf is uh, being blown apart it will it will go farther a little bit farther away from the neutron star and it will form just a small core with a with a carbon core carbon core yes so um, yeah it's, it's going to have an interesting end Brilliant. Amazing. And can you tell us a little bit about um, how to detect the gravitational waves? Yes. So uh, we we know uh, from binary pulsar experiments that I was mentioning before uh, that the orbit of the, of the uh, binary pulsar gets shorter in time, uh, with time, and that it shrinks at the exact rate predicted by general relativity. And that uh, so this tells us that the mechanism that general relativity tells us is shrinking the orbit is emission of gravitational waves. So since the 80s, where the, this was first measured precisely for uh, uh, 1913 plus 16, we've known that uh, there are gravitational waves. But the measurement is very indirect. So all we see is some binary pulsars out there that have some orbital period, and we see this orbital period decreasing uh, at the exact rate predicted by general relativity. And presumably, it's because of the emission of gravitational waves, but we have not, until now, detected them directly. Of yeah. course, the binary pulsar experiments give us confidence that gravitational waves is, exist, but we haven't seen them directly. So, um, as most listeners might know, there's a set of uh, large and very expensive experiments going on now uh, called LIGO, Virgo and others. There is even a proposed uh, satellite mission called LISA. Um, these experiments aim to detect gravitation waves directly. So uh, if there was a gravitation wave going through me right now, if it was coming from the front, I would get um, a little bit taller and a little bit skinnier uh, at the moment, which would be my favorite configuration. But then <laughs> half a cycle later, I'll be a little bit fatter and shorter. Okay. So the, the material object would oscillate between these two states. And uh, so uh, these um, changes um, produced by gravitational waves are tiny. And in order to detect them, we need to build a very high precision instrument called an interferometer. So they, they're looking at oscillations that are smaller than even the nucleus of an atom. So okay. so they have to be extremely sensitive and have to be able to really dig into to data. So th this is an extremely challenging measurement. That's why no one has yet achieved the direct detection of a gravitational wave. But, uh, you know, hopefully we'll be able to, to do that soon. We can do this also by timing binary pulsars or okay. by timing millisecond pulsars out, out in space. Because if such a wave is going through the solar system, then it will um, change the distances in our local neighborhood. Yeah. So we will be able to see some pulsars from some directions in space coming in late. The pulses will appear to come in late and from opposite directions. At 90 degrees, uh, we would see the pulses arriving early. Yeah. And then half a cycle later, we'd see the situation re reversing. So uh, millisecond pulsars have this interesting property that they generate gravitational waves when they're in a binary system, but they can also be used to detect them directly. But these, these will, are this kind of gravitational waves that we can detect with pulsars have um, periods of uh, many years. While the, with the detectors we have here on Earth, we can only sense gravitational waves uh, with the uh, periods of fractions of a second, hundreds of a second or a thousandth uh, of a second, because that's 
the size of the detector. It's a few kilometers, so you have to think about light going over four kilometers of the detector. That's the that's the kind of frequency you can see. That's the size of the object generating it. Oh, so wow. the size of the detector gives it the size of the object you want to detect. Yeah. And do you think it could be another explanation? Like when, when the binary system is, is orbiting around it and is losing energy, could it be something else apart from gravitational waves? Or uh, No. Uh, if we accept general relativity, then there is no no other way of producing this, this orbital decay. Uh, I mean, the, the match between the measured and predicted rates uh, of orbital decay is just wonderful. It's it's really an extremely precise match, and it really gives us very good confidence that we understand what is happening. Uh, so uh, there is no other way of uh, even starting to make a calculation if you don't assume that you know it's some distortion of space-time itself that is has a wave behavior and that's propagating outward from the binary. So about 1738, one of the one of the things, one of the reasons why this experiment is important is because uh, many people have been debating about fundamental issues in the universe, like dark matter, dark energy. Yeah. Um, and uh, th these are very important questions, of course, because dark matter and dark energy make up 96% of the contents of the universe. And the, um, the question is, is the universe really filled with all these uh, unseen forms of matter that we cannot detect? in any form. Uh, I mean, this, this sounds very weird. Yeah. Or could it be something wrong that we don't know about, for instance? Could it be that our understanding of gravity is is wrong? Uh, and we don't really know how, I mean, if Einstein is wrong, uh, if we, general relativity doesn't work as advertised, then we could uh, imagine situations where modifications, relatively small modifications of gravity can give us all these phenomena like yeah. dark matter and dark energy um, for free without needing to evoke all these extra stuff. So over many years, many people have come up with uh, theories uh, of gravity that behaves in a slightly different way than general relativity and that can naturally explain all of these phenomena like dark matter and dark energy. Yeah. An example is MOND, Modified Newtonian Dynamics. This yeah. is a, um, has been a discussion that has been going on for, for since 1983, when this uh, concept was first proposed by Professor Milgram. And since then, people have been, uh, you know, debating whether this theory really can explain dark, away dark matter or if we really need dark matter. And, uh, and gravity is behaving uh, as we expect. And, um, so this theory has a um, relativistic extension, tensor vector scalar theories. Uh, and uh, one of the conclusions that we've reached in our recent study is that if we combine several different binary pulsar experiments, we can exclude uh, this tensor vector scalar uh, theory. Okay. This, and this theory is the relativistic version of MOND, Modified Newtonian Dynamics. So if we exclude one, we exclude the other. Almost. There might be some kind of relativistic formulation that we don't know of, of Mond, but the two things are linked. So I think this has importance for our knowledge of how the universe works. And not only because we understand gravity better, but because also we have a better understanding of, of dark matter. We know it's not a distortion of gravity. We know it's something that's real, that it's out there. We haven't detected it, but it's likely there to be a some kind of particle that uh, we just haven't been able to detect yet. But, you know, one day we might. So. But yeah, it's, re it's really interesting that you can actually rule out other theories. So so you can just focus in finding dark that, matter that or is dark the, energy. That is the process of science, right? I mean, people yeah. formulate hypotheses and, uh, you know, accumulate evidence and they become theories. But, uh, you know, if theories don't conform to experiment, they fail. Yeah. So that this is this is science at work. I mean, I'm, I'm very <laughs> glad to be in a position where we can actually sort between different alternatives and uh, advance our knowledge of how nature really works. Brilliant. Well, very good interview. Thank you for being with us. You're welcome. Thank you for your time as well. And now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all of those other things that we can't fit in anywhere else and the odds and ends. So this month, 
I've sort of gathered together some information on why humans should go to Mars and why robots shouldn't. So most of this is sort of based on a paper which came out last month. And the writer put together a lot of interesting uh, numbers of why humans are so much better. Basically, the first one I want to sort of mention is the Mars rovers, the or Mars exploration rovers, which mm-hmm. are exploring Mars at the moment. I think there's still one moving about. And they've been up there for eight years, and they've managed to cover a whopping 35 kilometres. That's, so, that's not bad for a little yeah, not like, bad. rovers going around. And considering they can only go in the day, you know, I know fair enough. But then you compare that to humans who went to the moon, so the Apollo crews. They, in 3.4 days, so that's the days which they were actually walking around, they covered exactly the same distance of 35 <laughs> kilometres. So, a little bit more efficient. So a lot more efficient, yeah. And then for the same sort of thing for uh, collecting sort of samples and things, we sent once um, three robots to the moon to collect moon rock samples. And these were called the lunar missions. And they landed in three different locations and collected, again, a whopping 0.32 kilograms of material. Compare that to what the humans did. They landed, well, explored 2,000 different locations and collected an amazing 382 kilograms of material. That's a lot of material. (laughs) That is a lot. And uh, people are apparently still studying it today. So, you know, you're getting a lot of information out of that. And they sort of have estimated that humans in general are about 100 to 1,000 times more efficient at doing this. However, the main problem with sending humans is people say it costs a lot. Humans... Mm -hmm. Obviously, health problems as well. So what kind of health problems are there associated? The problems humans have with conditions in space is they can develop bone density problems from the gravity, as well as cardiovascular problems. And they also develop problems due to the radiation, the high levels of radiation. The costs, however, probably are more of the main legitimate concern for people. So if you compare the Apollo mission's cost, Mm -hmm. which was in today's money, $175 $175 billion, which is roughly twice the budget of an NHS yearly budget. So quite a lot of so, money. <laughs> so quite a lot of money. You can sort of understand why people are maybe a bit iffy, a bit sceptical about sending humans there. But on the other hand, if you compare the cost of sending someone to Mars today with all the new technology, we can maybe cut that down to $55 billion, but it's still pretty, still pretty expensive. Pretty big bill at the end yeah. of it. Looking at the efficiency again, though, you can see that because humans are a hundred to a thousand times more efficient than robots are, the cost is just massively, you know, the ratio of the cost when you're taking the efficiency isn't really that much. Because you'd have to send hundreds of robots to do the same job as a human, basically. So humans to Mars, robots stay at home. And staying a little bit closer to home, um, SpaceX is preparing to launch its Dragon capsule um, to the ISS on April 30th. And this is an unmanned cargo capsule, basically. And it's quite exciting because it's the first time that a privately funded cargo ship will actually dock with the ISS and supply it. Um, And there are two companies currently which are contracted with NASA to send cargo missions to the ISS. Um, One of them is SpaceX, and that one has um, a contract for 12 cargo missions using these Dragon capsules. And the other one is Orbital Sciences, and they have a contract for eight missions um, with its cargo ships, Cygnus, um, which I think it's pretty cool that they're getting sort of companies to go up there as well. And the really awesome thing is the way that the Dragon capsule is sort of docking with the ISS is it's being captured by the robotic arm and parked that way. It's like an amazingly (laughs) extravagant (laughs) sci-fi method of docking. Early tractor beams. That's what it is. Early tractor beams. That's what it is. My story is on a completely different note, and it concerns the results of the annual star count that is organised by the British Astronomical Association um, for the campaign to protect rural England and the campaign for dark skies. Have any any of you heard about it? Um, We had um, a mention about some of the dark sky campaigns in... I think a global one. uh, Yeah. Globe at night. In uh, a January extra. Yeah. Well, this is a, a British event. It's an annual event, and it was held um, this year across two weeks in January and February, and the results of it have just come out. 
Um, basically, members of the public were asked to count the number of stars that they could see in a clear night with the naked eye within the constellation of Orion. And then they used this information to measure the amount of light pollution that there is in a particular area. Mm-hmm. And the news is not good, I'm afraid. So over half the participants, so I think there were about a 1,000 in total um, all across the country, were unable to see more than 10 stars in the constellation. And that's only a small increase in the past five years despite various government guidelines and campaigns and things to decrease the amount of light pollution. So that's a problem for amateur astronomers, but it's also quite sad, you know, that light pollution is ruining everyone's view of the night sky. But at least it's not getting worse. At least they haven't found that it's actually got worse. That is true. That is true. Yeah, so I think they've got participants from all over the country, so I think they've got a fair idea about where the skies are darkest and where there's problems. And how many stars should we see in the rain? Well, according to the criteria in the study, if you can see over 30 stars within the constellation of Orion, then then that's a good dark sky. But I did read that somewhere on the internet, in double qu- in double quotes, um, that you should be able to see about 250 stars in Orion. Wow. I don't know whether that's totally reliable, but maybe <laughs> maybe one of the listeners could let us know how be many stars we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> So if you are one of the lucky 10% who gets a good view of the sky, you may be interested in what Melanie Genre has to say in Ask an Astronomer. Our first question today comes from Terry, who asks, when does a photon of light stop being a photon? As space-time is stretched, does it evolve into something else? Is there a photon equivalent in the radio spectrum? That's a, a really interesting question. There's two different concepts that are mixed up in this question. The first one is related to the na- nature of light. Um, it's not always a concept easy to grasp. It took mm-hmm. me quite a few years to actually <laughs> get it. Light can be both seen as a wave or a particle interchangeably. And the particle is called a photon. When you talk about different type of light, such as the, uh, the visible light, the infrared, the radio, what you're talking about is different wavelengths um, for the light. This corresponds when you're kind of transposing this into the particle view of uh, of light as a photon with different energy. Um, so it's inversely proportional to the wavelength. So the energy of a visible photon will be higher than the energy of a radio photon. So in the radio spectrum, it's still photons. It's just photons with different energies than uh, photons for different type of light. The second thing is the part that says, when does a photo stop being a photon? Photon can disappear. Uh, they can be absorbed by atoms and particles. Uh, this is actually um, the way a lot of chemical reactions happen. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, similarly, photon can be emitted during chemical reactions like that. So, like the photon can be absorbed by the atom and. and it gives its energy. Basically. Okay, increases its energy yeah. of, the, of the atom. The, the photon is basically a, a particle that has no mass but just energy. Mm-hmm. So, it's just inputting energy to the, uh, the atom okay. which reacts to it. Okay. Our second question comes from Jodder the Oak, who says, what is the Cassini division? Ah, the Cassini division has to do with the rings of Saturn. So if you look at Saturn from Earth, um, you'll see the rings and you see like a, a dark kind of gap between the main outer ring. Mm-hmm. You see like first ring, gap, second ring. Yeah. This is uh, a gap that was observed by uh, Giovanni Cassini in 1675 while he was working at the Paris Observatory, hence the name, Cassini <laughs> division. Um Division is called by something called resonance, um, which is a bit complicated. It's, like, physically speaking, the tendency of a system to oscillate at a greater amplitude at some frequencies than other. So every system has a, a natural frequency associated to it. The, the best example, for example, is a, a suspended bridge. Mm-hmm. Suspended bridge is like, you know, a string that you're holding from both sides. And because of its length, it's going to have a certain frequency that's associated to to it. Okay. If you have something like wind that will make this bridge move at the same frequency, mm-hmm. the bridge will go crazy. The amplitude will go crazy. Um, It'll try, start, to, start to vibrate at a really high yeah. amplitude. Try to YouTube uh, or Google uh, the Tacoma Bridge. Okay. You'll see, you'll see what I mean. <laughs> what, I, uh, well, what I mean by resonance. It's, it's just uh, everything gets disturbed. It's the same thing with the rings of Saturn. Um, Saturn has moons, mm-hmm. and the rings 
uh, around Saturn uh, feel the, the gravitational potential, the gravity from both the, the planet and the moons. Mm -hmm. And there are some distances for which the frequency um, that's associated with the planet mm -hmm. and the one associated with the moon get into that crazy mode okay. of resonance. In the case of the, uh, the Cassini division, it's uh, the resonance between Saturn and its moon Mimas. Um, at this particular distance between the two, um, the, um, the particles at this distance will orbit twice for every time the moon orbit once. Okay. That's like this kind of like integer number of orbit are the mm -hmm. resonances and everything goes havoc and just goes crazy. <laughs> Hence why the particles cannot stay. They, they find it dif too dif difficult too to difficult stay to there. Stay so there. Yeah. so the, the gap appears. Exactly. Okay, brilliant. Our next question comes from HMW, who says, we're all high potential engineers and physicists, so we could homebrew a spacecraft anytime we want, can't we? But what are the legal implications? As far as I know, there are national and international laws regulating lower airspace, but what about outer space? Is anybody allowed to send a probe into space? What happens if the probe hits another probe by accident? Is there anything like flight levels as we know them from aviation? That's a really cool question. <laughs> so since I was planning since uh, I was a little kid to spend, send my own spacecraft to space, <laughs> um, I researched uh, a little bit into this. turns out that in terms of um, altitude at which airspace is not airspace anymore, but outer space, there's absolutely no international agreement. Mm -hmm. uh, mostly because it's very difficult to define what, how do you define the boundary between airspace and outer space? Is it as far as any aircraft or balloon can go, which is mm -hmm. about 30 kilometers? Or is it uh, the lowest orbit at which you can have a, a stable, like a stable orbit, which mm -hmm. is about 160 kilometers? So 30 160. <laughs> it's a bit difficult. Um, and that limit actually depends on the country. Each country defines their own limit oh, between really? airspace and uh, outer space. Um, so the, um, the Fédération Aéronautique Internationale, um, which sounds French probably because it's it French, <laughs> um, defines that limit at about 100 kilometers. Okay. But the US, for example, set it at 80 kilometers. Um, well, it's more than that. They, they actually, the rules are if you go further than 80 kilometers above Earth, mm -hmm. you're considered an astronaut. Okay. Because you've been to outer space. <laughs> oh. So we don't know, and there's, there's no legal implication to this limit. So I think, legally speaking, there's no airspace for space. The only problem I see is that to send your probe from Earth mm -hmm. to outer space, you have to cross the airspace of your country. <laughs> And that's where you're going to have a problem and you need permission and everything. So I think that's the main problem. Yeah, that's really interesting. <laughs> Our final question comes from Graham, who says that he wishes to buy a telescope to broaden his vision of the universe and hopes that some can be recommended to him. Um, our podcast mentioned a basic telescope, which is what he's looking for. However, he would want to see the planets well and possibly having the ability to attach his SLR to. And he doesn't want to break the bank. Um, so he's asking if there is any advice to be given to that. Um, well, Ian Morrison wrote a very useful guide to buying a telescope. Um, it's on the uh, Digital Bank website. We'll uh, put the link on the show notes. Um, apart from that, my advice would be to well, either go to a specialist telescope store and mm -hmm. ask questions, or even better, uh, try to contact your local astronomical society. They tend to have beginner's night and things like that where they have their telescope out yeah. so that you can actually try the telescopes they have, <laughs> see which one uh, works the best for you. They'll know the prices, what uh, what to buy, where to buy, depending on, you know, what you want to do. So I think that would be my, my best advice. Yeah, that seems to be a really good plan. So, um, yeah, we hope that you manage to do that, Graham. All right, and those are all of the questions that we have for today. So thank you very much, Melanie. You're welcome. Thanks for that, Melanie. Now on to the feedback. Um, first of all, we've got a postcard from Liz Cole in Taronga, and she says that she loves the podcast and that she's a long-time listener. Uh, thank you very much for the postcard. We do enjoy getting actual physical posts, um, especially from as far away as New Zealand. So thank you very much for that. 
We also have an email from Don, who's from Boulder in Colorado, and he wanted to thank us for the shows. He said he's working his way through the back catalogue on his bike rides, um, and he's done a quick calculation that he does four rides a week at two hours per ride, so he thinks he's going to get through about eight episodes a week. Uh, and he says he'll be famously brilliant at the end of this, or at least be ever so slightly more informed than he is today, <laughs> and a lot fitter. On Facebook, we um, had plenty of posts. Here's just a couple of them. Um, we had one from Robert Bowman. He says, thanks for all the great podcasts. You, Your work is very much appreciated. Jod on. I'm sure we will. And Francis Day says, just caught up with some podcasts. Thought I'd tell you that I once experienced freezing rain from the February edition. I think that was mentioned. And it's amazing. And yes, it really does freeze on impact. But we unfortunately didn't get any here in Manchester, although I'm not sure whether that's unfortunate. But no, would we didn't get to see it. It would have been interesting it's to see. Promise. Yeah, <laughs> sounds pretty horrible to be here. <laughs> and thanks to everybody who did post on Facebook, and also thanks for all the tweets and follow Fridays on Twitter and all of the forum posts as well. So thank you very much, guys. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. At the forum at forum.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. At YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget, you can also send us post and the addresses on the website. So all that's left to say now is thank you to Professor Raman Pringer and Dr Paolo Ferreira for the interviews. And thanks to Dr Christine Jordan for the jodbite. The editors were Dan Thornton, George Bendo, Melanie Gendre, Liz Guzman and Christina Smith. The producer was Christina Smith. And until next time, jot on! (laughs) 